Chapter 58 of The Mysteries of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lyndon Godsall. The Mysteries of London by George W. M. Reynolds. Lord William Trevelyan. The scene changes to the residence of Lord William Trevelyan in Park Square. It was evening, and the young nobleman was pacing up and down in an elegantly furnished parlour, which was lighted by means of a brilliant gas jet enclosed in a pale red glass globe, so that the lustre which filled the room was of a roseate hue. The curtains, sofa, and cushions of the chairs were of a rich crimson, and the paper on the walls was of a kindred colour and splendid pattern. In each corner of the apartment stood a marble jar filled with flowers recently gathered and rendering the atmosphere cool and fragrant. Lord William was tall and handsome, his complexion was somewhat dark, giving him the appearance of a Spaniard rather than of an Englishman, and yet the ruddy hues of health were upon his cheeks. His hair was black as jet, silky as that of a woman, and parted above a brow-high, intellectual, and expressive of a noble mind. His eyes were large and dark, and full of the fire of genius, and there was something peculiarly pleasing, almost winning, in his smile. In disposition, Lord William was amiable, in manners unassuming, his character was unimpeachable, and his political opinions were of the most liberal tendency. His charity was extensive but entirely unostentious. His dependents revered him as a good master, and his acquaintances loved him as a sincere friend. He was in his twenty-fourth year, and, until he had set eyes upon Agnes Vernon, he had never experienced the influence of the tender passion. But one day... While on a visit to a friend at Norwood, he was strolling alone in the vicinity, and accident led his footsteps towards the cottage in the garden belonging to which he beheld the beauteous creature whose image had ever since filled his soul. Truly had he said to Mrs. Mortimer, that he adored the fair recluse of the cottage, that he worshipped the very ground upon which she trod, his love amounted almost to an idolatry, and yet he had never exchanged a word, scarcely even a look with the object of his affection. It could be no world-contaminated heart that entertained such a passion as this, 
no selfish soul that could cherish such a pure and holy attachment. But it was a generous, upright, noble-minded young man who was now anxiously waiting the arrival of the woman with whom he had made an appointment for the evening in question. Were the English aristocracy to be judged generally by such nobles as the Earl of Ellington and Lord William Trevelyan, the terms of its existence would now perhaps be within the range of prophecy. But as matters now stand, as the aristocracy is corrupt, selfish and cruel, self-sufficient and ignorant, proud and intolerant, unprincipled, profligate and tyrannical, it is not difficult to predict its speedy downfall. Therefore, it is that we boldly proclaim our conviction that monarchy and aristocracy will not exist ten years longer in enlightened England, but that a republic will replace them. The hereditary principle either in monarchy or aristocracy, is the most detestable idea that ever entered the brains of knaves or was adopted by fools. In respect to monarchy, we are gravely assured that the principle of hereditary succession guarantees a nation against the civil wars that may arise from the pretensions of numerous claimants to the supreme power. But the history of every monarchical country in the world gives the lie to this assertion. Crowns have been bones of contention from time immemorial and will continue to be so until they be crushed altogether beneath the heel of republicanism. Take the history of England, for instance. That England, where the hereditary principle is said to be admirable and efficacious beyond all question. Thirty-three kings or queens and two minors have reigned in this country, since the conquest by the Norman ruffian, and during that period we have had eight civil wars and nineteen rebellions. The laws of God, moreover, bear testimony against monarchy. What said the prophet Samuel when the Jews insisted upon having a king? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord. In asking you a king, so Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for their servants until the Lord thy God that we die not, for we have added unto our sins this evil to ask for a king. Either the Bible is true or false, 
if true, as assuredly it is, then is the institution of monarchy a positive crime, tolerated by an entire nation. And no wonder that heaven itself should protest against the system which is nothing more nor less than setting up an idol for the millions to worship, an idol as useless as an Indian pagod, but often as terrible and slaughterous in its baleful influence as juggernaut in its fatal progress. Never did Satan contrive a scheme more certain of promoting idolatry than the raising up of kings and queens as rivals to the majesty of heaven. For the root of monarchy is in hell. The laws of God denounce the institution as a sin, and the history of the whole world proclaims that blood inevitably attends upon it. All men were originally equal, and in no country, therefore, could any privilege of birth give one family a right to monopolize the executive power forever. Neither can one generation bind that which is as yet to come. The existing race of human beings has no propriety in the one unborn. We of the present day have no right to assume the power of enslaving posterity, and, on the same principle, our ancestors had no right to enslave us. If those ancestors chose to make one set of rules for themselves, we can institute another code for our own government. But, of course, such a change as this can only be made by the representatives of the people. And in order that the people may have a fair representation, the following elements of a constitution become absolutely necessary. Universal suffrage. Vote by ballot. No property qualification paid representatives, annual parliament, and equal electoral districts. Give us these principles, accord us these institutions, and we will vouch for the happiness, prosperity, and tranquility of the kingdom. The French now stand at the head of the civilization of Europe. They are on the same level as the fine people of the United States of America, and England occupies an inferior grade in the scale. Alas, that we should be compelled to speak thus of our native land, but the truth must be told. As yet, almost every country in Europe has demanded and obtained something of its rulers in consequence of the French Revolution, whereas England has yet obtained nothing in the shape of reform. O oh, shame, shame, what has become of our national spirit? Are we all willing slaves, and shall we not agitate, morally but energetically agitate, for our rights 
and liberties. The aristocracy and the men in power treat the people's assemblies with ridicule and denominate the working classes, when so assembled, as a mob. They will not discriminate between honest politicians and the respectable working classes on the one hand and the ragamuffinery of society on the other. They confound us altogether in the sweeping appellation of the mob. The incensus. Do they not reflect that if ten or fifty 15,000 persons meet for the purpose of discussing some grand political question, some five or six hundred pickpockets and mischievous boys are certain to introduce themselves into the assemblage. Why? Black sheep even find their way into the Houses of Parliament, yea, and into the very suite of royalty itself. But after recording all the above observations, we must once more declare that we do not recommend violence. We insist upon the necessity of grand moral agitation, an agitation which shall pervade the entire country as an ocean is roused by the storm into a mass of mighty waves. The people must assume an imposing attitude and let the memorial words of Lafayette be repeated by every tongue. For a nation to love liberty, it is sufficient that she knows it. And for a nation to be free, it is sufficient that she wills it. And, oh, my fellow countrymen, let not this glorious thesis be used in vain by the misery and starvation which millions of ye endure, by the hopeless entombment to which the poor law Bastilles condemn ye when work fails, by the denial of an honest recognition of the rights of labour, which is insolently persisted in, by the spectacle of your famished wives and little ones, by the naked walls of the wretched hovels in which the labouring population dwells, by the blinding toil of the poor seamstress, by the insults heaped on e by a rapacious aristocracy and an intolerant clergy, by the right which a despicable oligarchy usurps to hold the reins of power, by the limited suffrage which leaves the millions unrepresented, by the oppressive weight of taxation laid upon the productive classes, by the sorrows which the hard-working operative endures throughout his virility, and the misery that attends upon his dexteric feud, by the badge of pauperism, that the sons and daughters of toil are compelled to wear in the accursed union houses. By all your wrongs, we adjure ye not to remain at rest, not to endure the yoke which ye can cast off in a moment, not to stand still 
and gaze listlessly while all the rest of the civilized world is in motion. Returning from this digression to the thread of our narrative, we will suppose that Mrs. Mortimer has at length arrived at the house in Park Square, and that she is already seated with a young nobleman who little suspected the infamous character of the woman whom he had admitted to his confidence. I've been looking forward with much impatience and anxiety to your coming, said Lord William. But even now that you are here, I know not in which manner you can assist me. Faint heart never won fair lady, my lord, returned the old woman, and you must take courage. The maxim which I quoted is a good one. I do not despair, madame, said the young nobleman, and yet I seem as if I were involved in a deep mist through which I cannot even grope my way. Alone and unassisted, I cannot hope to obtain access to the charming creature, and, if assisted, I will do nothing that shall violate the respect due to one so pure of heart as I believe her to be. I should have proposed to become the bearer of a letter from your lordship, to Miss Vernon, remarked Mrs. Mortimer coldly, but perceiving beforehand that your scruples are over-nice and your notion somewhat of the most fastidious, I really do not see how I can serve you. I am afraid to write to her. She would perhaps be offended to an extent that might be irredeemable, exclaimed Lord William a prey to the most cruel bewilderment. And yet, your lordship, once endeavoured to bribe the servant girl to become the bearer of your amatory epistle, said Mrs. Mortimer in a tone of sarcasm, almost of disgust. Now you are offended with me, cried the nobleman. It is true that I did pen a letter to Agnes, telling her how much I loved her and how honourable were my intentions, imploring her likewise to grant me a few moments' interview and to pardon the means that I thus adopted of accosting her, having no other mode of procuring an introduction. Such a letter I did indeed write, continued Trevelyan, but it was in a fit of despair, of madness, of insolent recklessness. I know not how to explain myself. The servant refused to deliver that note, and my eyes were immediately opened to the impropriety of the proceedings which I had adopted, and therefore declined to entrust me, who I am well acquainted with Agnes, to deliver a similar letter in her hand, your lordship is wrong in thus refusing to be guided by me, continued the crafty old lady. Think you that with one so innocent, so artless as Agnes, I cannot prepare the way to render your letter acceptable, at least to prevent it from producing a sudden shock 
to her notions of maidenly propriety. Much as I should be rejoiced, could you accomplish that aim, said Trevelyan? I should be ten thousand times happier were you able to procure me an interview with her. This is madness, exclaimed the old woman. Can I not more easily introduce her to read a letter from a stranger than to receive that stranger in person? Is not the letter the first and most natural step to the visit? Trust to me, my lord, I know the disposition of Agnes, I understand affairs of this nature, and I am also well aware that love blinds you to the ways of prudence. Be it then as you propose, said Lord William, after a long pause, during which he reflected profoundly, I will write the letter this evening. Will you call for it early tomorrow morning? I will, answered the old woman, and in less than twenty-four hours I will undertake to bring you tidings calculated to encourage hope. Or, I am very much mistaken, she added emphatically. You do not believe. You have no reason to suppose that the father of Agnes already destines her to become the bride of some person of his own choice, asked Trevelyan, now for the first time shaping in words an idea that had haunted him for some days past. Because, he continued speaking with the rapidity of excitement, I cannot possibly comprehend wherefore he compels her to dwell in that strict seclusion. I do not believe that you have any such cause for apprehension, said Mrs. Mortimer in a tone of confidence, as if she were well able to give the species of assurance which she so emphatically conveyed. There is a mystery a deep mystery attached to the fair recluse. And what that mystery is, I am myself completely ignorant. But that the father of Agnes has no such intention as the one you imagined, and that Agnes herself has as yet never known the passion of love, these are facts to which I do not hesitate to pledge myself most solemnly. Oh, then there is indeed room for hope, exclaimed Lord William, his countenance brightened up and joy flashing in his eyes. A nobleman in your position, blessed with wealth and a handsome person, endowed with agreeable manners and a cultivated mind, said Mrs. Mortimer, need not despair of winning the love and excuse during the hand of a maiden dwelling in utter obscurity and totally unacquainted with the world. I would rather that she should learn to love me for my own sake, madame, observed Lord William in a serious tone, than for any adventitious advantages of rank or social position that I may possess. Well, my lord, we shall see said Mrs. Mortimer, rising to depart. 
Tomorrow morning I will call for the letter, and I shall proceed straight over to the cottage. In the afternoon or evening I will do myself the honour of waiting upon your lordship again. I shall expect you with impatience, madame, returned Trevelyan, as he politely hastened to open the door for her. Mrs. Mortimer took her leave, and the young nobleman sat down to pen a letter to Agnes Vernon. But this was not so easy a matter as he had anticipated. Sheet after sheet of paper did he spoil. A hundred times did he commence and as often did he throw aside his pen in despair. Now he fancied that his style was too bold. Then he conceived it to be too tame and vague. Now he imagines himself to be complimentary in his language towards one possessing a mind so chaste and pure. Then he felt assured that he was acting indiscreetly to write at all. In the course of an hour he was swayed by such an infinite variety of conflicting sentiments and impressions that he was almost inclined to throw up the task in despair. At length, however, he made a beginning which pleased him, and his pen then ran fluently enough over the paper until the letter was composed in the following manner. Pardon a stranger who dares to address you, beautiful Miss Vernon, in a strain that might give you offence. Were he not sincere in his language and honourable in his intentions, pardon me, I implore you, and refuse not to read these few lines to the end. He who thus writes is the individual that you have observed a occasionally in the vicinity of your dwelling, and you will perceive by the signature to this letter that he is not a man without ostensible guarantees for his social position, that his character is unimpeachable, he can proudly declare, and that he will not address you, Miss Vernon, a single word which he will fear to repeat in your father's presence, he solemnly declares. Let me, however, speak of myself in the first person again. Let me assure you that your beauty has captivated my heart, and that, if anything were waiting to render me your slave, the description with the bearer of this letter has given me of your amiable qualities would be more than sufficient. I am rich, and therefore I have no selfish motive in addressing you, even if you be rich also. But I would rather that it were otherwise with you, so that my present proceeding may appear to you the more disinterested. Had I any means of obtaining an introduction to you, beautiful Miss Vernon, I should not have adopted a measure that gives me pain because I tremble lest it should wound or offend you. But mine is an honest, a sincere, and a devoted attachment, 
and I shall be happy indeed if you will permit me to open a correspondence with your father on the subject. Were he to honour me with a visit, I should be proud to receive it, but if, in the meantime, you seek to know more of me, if I might venture to solicit you to accord me an interview of only a few minutes, you cannot divine how fervently I should thank you, how delighted I should feel. Let this interview take place in the presence of Mrs. Mortimer, if you will. I have nothing to communicate to you that I should hesitate to say before your father or your friends. Oh, how can I convince you of my sincerity? How can I testify my devotion? How can I prove the extent of my love? I beseech you to reflect, Miss Vernon, that my happiness depends upon your reply. Am I guilty of an indiscretion in loving you? Love is a passion beyond mortal control. He who knows no other deity deserves not blame for worshipping the sun because it is glorious and bright. And my heart, which knows no other idol, adores you because you are beautiful and good. Treat not my conduct then with anger. Let not your pride be offended by the proceeding which I have adopted in order to make my sentiments known to you, and scorn not the honest, the pure, the ardent affection with an honourable man dares to proffer you. I do not permit punishment because I love you. And your silence would prove a punishment severe and undeserved indeed. Again, I conjure to you remember that the happiness of a fellow creature depends upon you. Your decision will either inspire me with the most joyous hope or plunge me into the deepest despair. At the same time, beauteous Agnes, the words, those delightful words, beauteous Agnes, are written now, and I cannot, will not erase them. At the same time, I say, if your affections be already engaged, if a mortal more blessed than myself have received the promise of your hand, accept the assurance, sweet maiden, that never more shall you be molested by me. Never again will I intrude myself upon your attention. For my love is united the most profound respect, and not for worlds would I do aught to excite an angry feeling in your soul. Your ardent admirer and devoted friend, William Trevelyan. With this letter, the young nobleman was satisfied. He considered it to be sufficiently energetic and at the same time respectful. He saw nothing in it against which the purest mind could take exceptions, and in the sanguine confidence natural to his age and to the honourable candour of his disposition, he already looked upon his aims as half accomplished his aspirations as half-gained. 
Having sealed and addressed the letter, he placed it upon the mantelpiece, ready for Mrs. Mortimer, when she should call in the morning. Then, fetching a portfolio from an inner room, he opened it, and from among several drawings in watercolours, selected one which his gaze was immediately riveted with deep and absorbing interest. For that painting, executed by his own hand, was a portrait of Agnes Vernon, and even the most fastidious critic, if acquainted with the original, must have pronounced it to be a living likeness. Yes, on that paper was delineated with the most perfect accuracy the fair countenance of the recluse of the cottage. Every feature, every lineament drawn with a fidelity to which only a first-rate artist or an amateur whose pencil was guided by the finger of love could have possibly attained. There were the eyes of deep blackness and melting softness. There was the high, intelligent forehead. There was the raven hair, silken and glossy, and seeming to flow luxuriantly even in the very picture. And there was the rich red mouth, wearing a smile such as mortals behold upon the lips of angels in their dreams. How charming was the entire countenance, how amiable, how heavenly the expression that it wore. And no wonder that likeness was so striking, so accurate, so faithful, for the young nobleman had touched and retouched it until he had delineated on the paper the precise counterpart of the image that dwelt in his mind. Hours and hours had he devoted to the labour of love. On each occasion when he returned home after contemplating, from behind the green barrier of the garden, the idol of his adoration, he addressed himself to the improvement of that portrait. At one time he had beheld the maiden to greater advantage than another, and then he studied to convey to the cardboard the last and most pleasing impression thus made upon his mind, until he produced a likeness so faithful that not another touch was required. No further improvements could be effected. And like Pygmalion with his Galatea, how Lord William Trevelyan worshipped that portrait, no, the smile is incorrect, because the sculptor learnt to adore the statue that was cold and passionless, whereas the young nobleman was blessed with the conviction that there was a living original for the image he had so faithfully traced upon his paper, and it was that living original whom he made the goddess of his thoughts. The clock had struck ten and Lord William was still bending over the portrait that lay upon the table when a footman entered the room to announce that a lady who declined to give her name solicited an interview with the young nobleman. Lord William, hastily closing the portfolio, desired that she might be immediately shown into his presence. The mayor domestic bowed and retired, 
In a few minutes he returned, ushering in the unknown visitor, who wore a veil over her countenance. But the moment the footman had withdrawn, she raised the veil and disclosed a face that was strikingly handsome, though pale and careworn. She was apparently about thirty-six or thirty-seven years of age, with dark hair, fine hazel eyes and good teeth, tall and well-formed her figure, which was rather inclined to embonpoint, was set off to advantage by the tasteful, indeed elegant style of her dress. And in her deportment there was an air of distinction denoting the polished and well-bred lady. Lord William received her with becoming courtesy, requested her to be seated, and then awaited an explanation of her business. Your lordship is doubtless surprised to receive a visitor at so unreasonable an hour, and on the part of a complete stranger, began the lady, in a pleasing though mournful tone of voice. But I know not to whom else to address myself for the information I now seek and if you cannot afford it to me, I shall be unhappy indeed. Madame, said Lord William, somewhat astonished at this mysterious opening of the conversation, if it be in my power to serve you, I shall render that service cheerfully. You are very well acquainted, I believe, my lord, with Sir Gilbert Heathcote, observed the lady somewhat abruptly as she bowed her head thanks for the assurance the young nobleman had given her sir gilbert heathcote though much older than i is an intimate friend of mine observed trevelyan do you know where he is what has become of him demanded the lady in a still more anxious tone than before i really do not madame was the reply Merciful heaven, she exclaimed, clasping her hands together in a paroxysm of sorrow. I have not seen him for this week, continued Trevelyan, but are you ill, madame? Can I offer you anything? Shall I summon assistance? And as he spoke, the nobleman rose from his seat and approached the bell pole. No, no, my lord, cried the lady, do not ring. Do not call your servant. I shall be better presently. But pardon me if I could not control my feelings, she added, wiping the tears from her eye. The young nobleman, in spite of the adjuration to the contrary, hastened into the adjoining room and speedily returned with a decanter of spring water and a tumbler. He then filled the glass and presented it to his afflicted visitor, whom thanked him for his delicate attention with a look expressive of gratitude, the words that she would have uttered being stifled in her throat. Refreshed with a cooling beverage, she said after a short pause, My lord, have you the slightest conception where your friend Sir Gilbert Heathcote is? Did he intimate to you his intentions to leave London? Did he hint at the probability of his departure from England? Oh, I conjure you to tell me all you know, for, for, for you cannot divine how much, how deeply I love him.
of Valium was struck with astonishment at these last words. Words that were uttered in a tone of such convincing, such profound serenity that he could not for an instant question their import. And yet, though since the days of childhood, Trevelyan had known Sir Gilbert Heathcote, he had never heard that the baronet was married. On the contrary, he had invariably understood him to be a single man. If this latter belief were the true one, then was the lady now in his presence the mistress of his friend? For assuredly she had not spoken with the confidence of a sister, but with the hesitation of one who reveals a fact that is in some way associated with shame. The lady perceived what was passing in the mind of Trevelyan, and in a low but fully audible tone said, My lord, circumstances compel me to reveal myself to you as your friend's mistress. Yes, though I love him more than ever wife could love, yet am I only his mistress for, alas, I am the wife of another. And now, my lord, she added with deep feeling, you may spurn me from you. You may command your lacay to trust me from your dwelling, but I implore you to give me tidings of Sir Gilbert. Madame, exclaimed Trevelyan, the moment he could recover from the bewilderment into which this impassioned address plunged him, not for worlds could I do or say aught to augment year affliction, much less to insult you. I declare to you most solemnly that I have neither heard nor seen anything of Sir Gilbert Heathcote for a week. I called at his chambers in the Albany the day before yesterday and was simply informed that he was not at home. I left my card without thinking to make further inquiries, not suspecting that his absence had been for days instead of hours. Oh yes, upwards of a week has elapsed since I saw him, exclaimed the lady, with difficulty subduing a fresh out burst of grief. Each day I have been to the Albany, and still the answer is the same. He has not returned. No, he has not returned, she added, clasping her hands together, and he has not written to me. Oh God, I fear that some fatal accident has befallen him. Do not give way to such a distressed belief, cried Trevelyan, feeling deeply for the unfortunate woman whose grief was so profound and so sincere. Shall I make inquiries, immediate inquiries, concerning him? Perhaps I may learn more than a lady possibly can. Generous-hearted nobleman, exclaimed the visitor, how can I ever repay you for this kindness towards an utter stranger? Remember also, madame, said Trevelyan, that apart from my readiness to serve you or any lady whom affliction has overtaken, I begin to experience some degree of anxiety on behalf of a gentleman who has ever shown a sincere friendship towards me. 
Not another minute will I delay the inquiries which, alike for your sake and his, I now deem it necessary to institute. Thus speaking, the young nobleman rose from his chair. My lord, said the lady, rising also, and speaking in a tone indicative of deep emotions, may I hope to receive a communication from you as early as possible. My suspense will be great. It is even now intolerable. And she burst into tears. Madame, interrupted the young nobleman, profoundly touched by her affection, which was evidently most unfeigned. You can either accompany me or remain here until my return. Perhaps the latter will be the more desirable. At least, if you can restrain your impatience so natural under the circumstances for a couple of hours, but perhaps, he added, an idea striking him, perhaps you live at some distance. I am the occupant of a house in Kentish town, said the lady and therefore my dwelling is not very far from your lordship's. If you see no impropriety in it, if there be no one here whom my presence would offend, she continued, speaking in a subdued and almost timid tone, I would rather, oh, much rather wait until you return. By all means, madame, exclaimed the generous-hearted young noble, should you require anything during my absence, the servants will obey your summons, and they will receive my orders ere I depart to pay you every attention. I shall not trouble them, my lord, was the reply, but I return you my deepest, sincerest thanks for the kind consideration with which you treat me. Trellian bowed and then quitted the room. End of chapter 58